0: Hello and welcome to Mrs. M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct, and a craftful life. Whether you are a returning listener or tuning in for the first time, you are most welcome in my little corner of curiosity, making, and wonder. For anybody who is here for the first time, I'm Meg and based in London. You can find me on Instagram as Mrs. M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word and on Ravelry as Meg AK Mrs M and that is with hyphen between each word. I will link these details as well as anything else I mention on the podcast in the show notes. These are available on my blog Mrs. M's Curiosity cabinet.com I normally publish two types of podcast episodes, on a more or less alternative basis. Shorter scrapbook style ones in which I share random aspects of my making practice, and then slightly longer reflective ones, like today's episode in which I explore the tension between my love of materials and my making instinct, on the one hand, and my environmental and ethical concerns on the other. However, as we're hardly living in normal times, the line between these two may merge a bit. So, how are you all doing in these utterly real surreal times? I hope you and your loved ones are managing to stay safe and healthy, and you're finding a way to navigate the upheavals, inconveniences and concerns in a way that feels manageable. Mr M and I are muddling through as best as possible. In some ways, as I typically spend a lot of time at home due to fibromyalgia and live with an open-ended condition, I'm possibly finding it a little easier to adapt to lockdown than some. Here in the UK, we are fortunate that we are still allowed out for a bit of exercise, and our government-sanctioned daily constitutionals are definitely your godsend. But as for most people, there are, of course, also practical issues to contend with, like queuing for groceries and the shortage of flour and yeast, and now also gardening seeds. Not to mention the concern about loved ones and the practical impact on work and livelihoods. Despite all the upheaval and worry, I also have to admit to a sliver of geeky fascination and optimism as I witness and experience a lot of creative energy and grassroots mobilisation, not just in my neighbourhood, but around the UK and in many other countries. The constraints of lockdown are undeniably a pain in the backside and seriously affecting many people's health and livelihoods. But I'm really buoyed by how community is mushrooming up to fill certain gaps, to make sure those living in isolation, for whatever reason, are getting their food supplies in, The grassroots efforts to sow scrubs for overstretched hospitals and small businesses and research departments swinging into action to print visors. And then there is a creativity that people are showing to adapt their businesses to the current reality and developing generous and mutual methods to support companies and individuals as whole sectors of work have come to a standstill. The Artists' Support Pledge initiative on Instagram, which encourages people to support artists' work who then invest in other artists' work, and the crowdfunded Front Room Festival, organised by the ever-inspiring Folk on Foot podcast, are just a couple of examples. Yes, we'd obviously all prefer not to be in this situation, but it is really inspiring to see how many people are responding with both creativity and no-nonsense practical solutions, to plug gaps that official channels seem to have no answers for. I know it may seem strange to talk about this kind of thing on a making podcast, particularly as what we probably all want to do is escape from the reality for a bit, but it would feel odd to me not to acknowledge the creativity and community born out of crisis, because I regard this kind of action and experimenting as another type of making, as I mentioned in episode 18 of the podcast. Making lives more manageable or a bit brighter in an awful time, building community ties, creating shorter, more resilient supply chains are all forms of making. Also, I haven't really talked about it here on my podcast, but all these things completely tie in with what was my area of research. For my dissertation, I focused on environmental behaviour change and particularly what role online communities of interest could play in shaping different behaviour, practices and support networks. This area of interest meant I was a bit of a pariah at social events, but it does mean that no matter how exhausted I am by the concerns and practical limitations of the lockdown, my antennae are also buzzing as we live through what is de facto a massive experiment of how grassroots community kicks in during a time of crisis. But enough of these observations. What about my making? Today I'll be talking about how much of my making is currently centred around the familiar, but also the stunningly practical. So I hope you have a drink to hand and maybe a making project. There is a lot going on at the moment between working on setting up my pottery business, great timing I know, and writing the next issue of the pamphlet, as well as a general upheaval due to COVID-19. I'm therefore very much craving familiarity in my relaxing making. I'm enjoying working with yarn, fabric and patterns that feel comfortably familiar. Old friends whose performance I know, patterns whose quirks I've figured out and know how to navigate. As a result, I'm knitting my way through another pair of Luli's socks with holes in, using Rosa Pomar's Mondem yarn. I've also just cast on a new crumb cardigan by Andy Sutherland in a Uist wool, the Shan DK, which is a Cheviot and Zoarbles mix. The reassuring familiarity of these patterns and the comforting lack of surprises about these wools is just what I want at the moment. My sewing is a touch more adventurous, but only a touch as it's very much based on tried and tested patterns. As we are inching out of the several layers of cardigan weather, I'm building up my stock of woven tops. I'm using familiar patterns that I'm tweaking here and there to create a modest sense of variety without requiring any real headspace. The trapeze dress pattern by Merchant & Mills is proving a good starting point for a smock-like top, which is roomy enough to function as an extra layer over a dress, but also looks fine as a separate. The pattern comes with a shortened lengthened line, but I ignored this as otherwise I would have ended up with a wide tent. Measuring myself, I worked out how long I wanted the top to be. I then took the tape measure to the front panel and measured down from the shoulder at the point where it meets the neck and marked the desired length. I then measured up from the hem to that point and inching my way along the curved hemline created a dotted line that I could join up. I then took the same measurement from the hem line up and applied it to the back panel using the same inch and mark method. I know I might be teaching people to suck eggs here but it's important to measure from the hem up rather than from the top down because front panels are often longer than the back panel to allow for the curves of the bust. My hacks to the Francine top, another Merchant & Mills pattern, have been a bit more varied as I'm turning it into two other styles. One is a shirt layer that I will talk about at a later date. The other is a simplified top that keeps the open v-neck but dispenses with the collar. I do love the sailor-like collar, but I am experimenting with a simpler design for two reasons. The first is that the collar and neckline is quite tricky to sew. I don't want to give too much away as it's a paid for pattern, but any pattern that requires you to stitch the front and facing together about three millimetres or an eighth of an inch away from a cut edge requires a fair amount of attention. Secondly, removing the collar which is cut on the fold also slightly reduces the amount of fabric I need, which brings me on to a topic I care a lot about, both from an environmental perspective but also as a thrifty sewer. As I'm sure is the case for most people too, the current circumstances mean I'm having to be more careful with money than normal. At the same time, I really want to support companies, including independent haberdasheries and fabric shops, as I want them to survive the economic downturn that this pandemic is bound to cause. I therefore thought I would share some tips on how to maximise fabric supplies. When it comes to fabric efficiency, there are some blatantly obvious issues, and more subtle ones as well. But to avoid darting all over the place, I will split the tips into two categories. First, choice of fabric. I generally find that fabrics that come in 140 or 150 centimetre wide bolts, so that's about 54 to 60 inches, more fabric efficient than fabric that is available in 110 centimetres or 45 inches wide, as there is generally just more scope to squeeze the smaller pattern pieces into the extra width rather than needing extra length. I favour plain fabric or fabrics with vertical stripes over patterned cloth, both from an aesthetic perspective, but also as this minimises fabric loss due to pattern matching. If, however, you really love patterns but need to watch the pennies, I would pick a really small pattern or one that is very busy so pattern matching is not so critical. Avoiding fabrics with a nap, like velvets or corduroys, or any directional patterns also increases fabric efficiency as you can place pattern pieces head to toe if necessary. I would also say keep all off cuts. I know they can be cumbersome to store, but they can be used for facings, which saves on overall yardage of new fabric for a project. As long as the cloth has a similar weight and weave as the main fabric of a project, it should work as a facing. Sometimes you can even dispense with facings altogether and use bias binding instead, which is where scraps come in handy too. It's surprising how little fabric you actually need to make binding for a simple neckline and armholes. I don't always drop the facings. It depends on the fabric, the structure of the garment and its use. For example, with a trapeze dress, I think the facing actually adds some structure. But in a short and top version of that pattern, or even a nightdress based on the pattern, I think binding around the neck and armholes is perfectly sufficient. The next category of tips relates to choice of patterns, as this can influence how much fabric and notions you need. Obviously, knee-length skirts and short-sleeved tops require less fabric than, say, a maxi dress or a long-sleeved top, and similarly, ruffles just eat fabric. But there are also many other design features that can influence fabric efficiency. As somebody who always looks at the fabric yardage as well as the technical drawings, I'm often amazed at the difference in fabric estimates from certain companies compared to others. So here are some things to look out for if you're eager to keep costs down by being fabric efficient. The easiest fabric efficiency win is to avoid garments cut on the bias as these require a lot more fabric not just because you have to place pieces at a 45 degree angle to the grain line, i.e. on the diagonal, but also because you should avoid placing bias pieces head to toe on the diagonal. In other words, if you have a front and a back panel for a top, the shoulder seams of each panel will typically point towards each other, leaving a triangle of waist fabric between the two panels. For dresses, tops and skirts, if both front and back panels are cut on the fold, you're likely to need more fabric than if one of the panels is made up of two separate pieces, particularly when working with 110cm or 45 inches wide fabric. The only exception to this is if the two half panels are closed with buttons rather than seamed or zipped, as you will need fabric for the button band facing. Often more fitted garments require less fabric than a more boxy design. I don't mean that just in terms of fitted versus oversized, I mean it in the context of fitted versus casual. Fitted garments often involve more but smaller pattern pieces, and while more pattern pieces means each piece will involve a seam allowance, it is often possible to jigsaw puzzle smaller pieces together on fabric more efficiently. For example, compare the yardage for a pair of jeans with a yoked back to, say, a more casual, loose legs pull-on pair, where the shaping is created by an elasticated waist. Or compare the yardage needed for a vintage-inspired Jennifer Lauren handmade dress, like the Laneway dress, with that for a looser, more modern style, like Grainline Studios Farrow dress. That's not intended to put anybody off making more casual styles of garments, but rather to dispel any myth that patterns involving more pattern pieces or shaping are necessarily more expensive because of the fabric requirement. In my experience, the fabric efficiency gains really go up with fitted patterns the more you go up through the size ranges. Thinking about fabric efficiency, whether from a cost or environmental perspective, is one of those things that can sound utterly tedious and like it cramps our creative juices when we just want to have fun with our sewing. But often creativity really thrives on limitation and restrictions, something I suspect many of us are experiencing at the moment anyway. So even if it's not possible to get our hands on new fabric, whether due to cost, shops being closed or deliveries being slower than usual, do bear in mind that with some careful choices about pattern, a little planning about fabric and possible tweaks that won't make a visible difference, there are usually ways to eke fabric out to create a new garment. just been making practical decisions in my sewing in recent weeks. I've also found myself being uber practical in other areas of my everyday making due to both a shortage of goods and services but also due to being home more than is normal even for me. As an environmentally minded person, I'm pretty thoughtful about what I bring into the household and also dispose of. But like everything at the moment, a lot of practices are coming even more sharply into focus as I muddle through the realities of life where not everything is available on demand or even available with careful considered planning. And not surprisingly, the lack or lag in availability of goods and services has produced some interesting responses. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a lot of stress on councils. Not only are they feeling the pinch due to revenue from business rates collapsing, they are also trying to deliver services with a smaller workforce. One of the ways my local council has responded, like many others in the UK, is to reduce their rubbish collection service. My local council has officially temporarily suspended its garden waste collection and in practice it seems to be alternating its collections for dry recyclets and black waste, i.e. everything that gets burnt or buried. At the same time we're into a busy time in the gardening year. As well as cutting out a lot of dead stuff, I'm also busy sowing seeds on every sunny surface in the home and seedlings need to be potted on into larger containers before they can be planted out after the first frosts. I'm always pretty good at spotting the potential of waste, but at the moment I'm like a demon possessed. Not just diverting every egg carton and toilet roll holder from the recycling bucket, but also every mushroom tray and yoghurt pot. And although normally I jokingly berate Mr M for buying cartons of orange juice, I am currently pouncing on every Tetra pack because they make excellent deep pots for sowing beans or peas, as legumes like a long root run. But my waste resourcefulness is not just focused on the short term. With garden centres closed and the limited online suppliers of peat-free compost being seriously overwhelmed, homemade compost feels more precious than ever. So any food scrap or uncoated cardboard is being hoarded for the bokashi bin and compost heap so I can get the next load brewing for the autumn mulch. It has also been very informative to work out what items and conveniences I actually miss. I will admit, as my purchasing habits have long been skewed towards making, I'm probably not representative of the average shopper. For example, I found myself missing the local art shop as my supply of sugar paper, which I use for pattern hacking, has dwindled. And I seriously regret not stocking up on wood, sandpaper and a chisel before lockdown so I could make that tensioned Lazy Kate for plying homespun yarn. I can't do much about the Lazy Kate project at the moment other than continue to make do with the makeshift shoebox knitting needle affair. But as far as pattern paper goes, I find myself diligently salvaging any brown parcel envelopes and wrapping paper that arrives with online deliveries, pressing them with an iron and folding them away as part of my precious sewing supplies. And to tell you the truth, this approach is not exactly a hardship. Yes, I need to find some space to store my growing supply of scavenged paper and makeshift seed trays, and at times it's a little unsightly, but it's hardly the end of the world. Reduced access to new resources also means I'm finally starting some of the remake and recycling projects that I've been scavenging materials for, but have never got round to starting because there's always a slightly more exciting project on hand. Like finally turning old pillows into cushion pads or making table mats to replace the battered unsightly ones. For months now, two pillows, the stuffing of which was so underwhelming that it wouldn't even support my cat's tail, let alone my head, had been propped in a corner of the bedroom with every intention of turning them into cushion pads. I already had the cushion covers that they would fill, so all I needed to do was cut the pillow fabric down from a rectangle into a square, shove all the stuffing into the smaller space and stitch them up again. So on Easter Monday, after finishing a morning of chores and hoovering the home, I tuned into the front room festival and set about the task. I measured the new width of the cushion and marked it with a pencil so I could easily hand stitch the new seam. I laid a towel on the floor to catch any feeling that would escape from the pillow and started to cut. You can probably see where this is going. As my hands and the shears moved along the fabric, plumes of stuffing went everywhere but on the towel. What followed was frantic, clumsy backstitching as I desperately tried to seam the fabric while all the time stuffing puffed out and into my eyes and nostrils. This disarray is of course why I had put the job off for so long. Still, we learn from our mistakes. So when it came to the second cushion pad, there was no messing about. I drew my stitching line on the pillow. Then I squashed the limpless filling down to one end of the pillow with the same no-nonsense approach I use when bundling Dante into a box before a trip to the vets. Next, I pinned the front and back fabric of the cover along the stitch line and set about back-stitching. I didn't bother cutting off the excess fabric, which meant no plumes of fluff. Stitching a stuffed cushion is hard on the hands, especially ones that were already cramped from a morning's work. So the whole effort was decidedly cack-handed, to use one of my mother's common reproofs, but at least the job was finally done. As long-term listeners will know, I normally tend towards perfectionism. But remaking useless pillows into functional cushion pads was a good reminder that making is as much about knowing when a job needs to be done properly and where it makes sense to cut corners. As certain goods and services have fallen away, I suspect a lot of us are finding ourselves making a lot more from scratch or semi-scratch at the moment. I don't mean the hobby-making projects we document online or that appear in lifestyle magazines. I mean daily cooking, conjuring up meals out of store cupboard ingredients to avoid long social distancing queues at shops, making bread out of unusual flowers and raising agents due to shortages putting together random materials for homeschooling projects, starting a quick cut and come salad garden, maybe sewing masks. Everyday making is, I suspect, taking up proportionately more of our day than usual, and a lot of that making is not particularly picturesque or sexy. Inevitably, it will on occasion involve cutting corners to get the job done, but even so, there is definitely value in such everyday making, no matter how muddled or messy it is. It's a pity that it takes a pandemic and the prevailing system pretty much grinding to a halt to realise how vital the making efforts that go into our everyday needs are. Efforts that are often outsourced to people who are generally poorly paid and often classed as low-skilled. Making, even if it involves hand-fisted attempts, is a good reminder that A. Human survival ultimately depends on various forms of making and B, that the mundane forms of making deserve much more recognition and appreciation than the prevailing economic system seems to afford them. As frustrating and worrying as the current times are, I seem to be buzzing with more curiosity than ever, even if I don't currently have the means or headspace to pursue all inspiration. I therefore wanted to share a couple of inspiring gems that reflect that mindset of curiosity, experimentation and inquiry. In recent weeks, I've been fascinated by the Sustainable Darkroom Project, organised by the London Alternative Photography Collective, which you can find at www.londonaltphoto.com and on Instagram at londonaltphoto. This is an artist-run research, training and mutual learning programme which explores more environmentally friendly photographic darkroom practices. This project was originally envisaged as a series of resonances, talks and symposiums. However, because of COVID-19, it has moved online, which has meant the investigations and experiments are probably reaching a wider audience. The Sustainable Darkroom project has been divided into four week-long themes. Recycle, Remove, Repurpose and Rework. And different photographic artists are introducing their range of experiments and inquiry. For example, Eddie Carr's inquiry into the environmental impact of gelatin-coated film. Or Kate O'Neill's sourcing of waste glass from framers for making her photographic plates. Not to mention experiments with herbal developers like William Lawrence Arnold's use of willow and Crystal Benner's use of gorse. As well as being rooted in curiosity and concerns about sustainability issues, this project's inquiry and experiments somehow recall the curiosity and experimentation and wonder of the early pioneers in photographic imagery. As a teenager I really enjoyed pottering around in dad's garage come darkroom, much preferring the chemistry and the process of developing and printing to actually taking photos. But I found it really interesting to reconsider darkroom practices three decades later through a different prism, one informed by environmental studies but also my interest in natural dyeing and mineral pigments in pottery and printmaking. I also find it really uplifting to know that concerns about sustainability are rippling out in various creative fields and that artists and practitioners are trying to find ways to reconcile their concerns with their creative work. Also, projects like The Sustainable Darkroom really fuel my own different yet analogous lines of inquiry about the medium and consumables of my own creative practices. The other inspiring gem I wanted to share is materium, which I was introduced to thanks to a Royal College of Arts textile student who had been experimenting with making bioplastics from Japanese knotweed, a really invasive weed. You can find materium at www.materium.org or on Instagram at materium underscore. Materium is devised as an open source nature's recipe book where people can share recipes of materials made from local, abundantly available biomass, with the aim of encouraging a regenerative circular economy. This database of recipes is utterly fascinating. It's not geared to highly specialist lab scientists, but anybody who wants to experiment in their kitchen or in their garage. The materials involved are the kind of things we might already find in our kitchen or craft supplies and often the core ingredients are food or other household waste from coffee grounds and avocado pits to spent grains from home brewing or shells from seafood. The materials that can be produced are anything from natural dyes and composites that can be moulded into biodegradable pots to bioplastics and plant-based leather-like fabrics. One of the recipes that particularly fascinated me was kombucha leather. I have to say, to date, I've had no interest whatsoever in the fermented drink kombucha. To start with, as I've never cared for juices, squashes or fizzy drinks, not even as a very odd child, I've never felt the need to make kombucha as a healthy, natural, packaging-free alternative. Secondly, the scoby, or symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, which multiplies and floats on top of the liquid, quite frankly looks pretty revolting to me. So, as a drink, kombucha is a complete turn-off to me, but as a pliable, sewable fabric, it definitely piques my interest. I'm wondering how viable it would be for homemade sandals, maybe even an environmentally friendly take on the jelly sandals. Well, that's probably enough random geeky excitement for one episode. My semi-planned podcasting schedule is a bit out of whack because, let's be honest, my making has been thrown out by the current times. But no doubt I shall be back before too long. In the meantime, I hope you manage to stay well and muddle through while keeping your physical and mental health intact as much as possible. And I hope that, like me, you can manage to find enjoyment in the good hours, despite the upheaval and worries. Also, for anybody living through lockdown restrictions on their own, my heart really goes out to you. And please accept an extra gentle virtual hug. So, until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be.